Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, will a cash injection bring children back to TV? We discuss which face of 80s pop culture is getting a lift, the second ever gender pay gap survey that makes for uncomfortable reading, and Global's billboard takeover. Plus, we'll play their word against ours in the Media Quiz. It's all to come today's Media Podcast. And joining us today in Veteran Contributor Corner is the Managing Director of Indie Goldwaller. It's Faraz Osman. Hello, Faraz. Hey, Ollie. How you doing? I'm all right, thank you. What's exciting you? What's floating your boat at the moment? Beyonce's on Netflix. The sun's shining. I've had some ice cream. Right. I like your shirt. You've got there Easter you go. all set up. <laughs> okay. And uh, making her media podcast debut, it's broadcaster Jane Garvey. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ollie. Uh, you were one of the first voices, in fact, the first voice on Five Live, I believe. I was, don't, please, I was the, the. first voice. How, yeah. how did you feel come this 25th anniversary? Bloody old, <laughs> depressed. <laughs> I think, actually, they um, didn't involve me in the celebrations this year. I think it's like they want to pretend I never existed because I'm a bit, old, bit Radio 4 and a bit tragic. So I noticed I was uh, kept out of any... I, wasn't, I didn't get any cake. Didn't maybe get maybe any, they just couldn't afford you, Jane. No, well, they could, well, as we know, everyone can afford me. Um, <laughs> uh, didn't even get an invite to Salford. Uh, so, yeah, it was all a bit miserable. But anyway, there you go. I, I did tweet about how delighted I was to be around for Five Lives' 25th birthday. I mean, it's changed quite a lot since you... I mean, not just in the sense that... Daniel, mate, hasn't yeah, it? Well, this news and sport idea, hmm. that feels like something from 25 years ago. If you were launching a news network now, would yeah. you have Let's Break for the Live Football? You see, Five Live continues to be uh, my favourite radio station. It is the station I listen to more than any other. And I'm sure I'm not in a minority. I am interested in live football commentary and Brexit and everything else going on in the world. And I'm afraid 
I, I've, I've, actually, one of the things that they did do uh, on the day of the birthday was, I think, or I think it might have been on the Radio Today podcast, they played a bit of audio from the drinks party that was held at Broadcasting House on the morning that Five Live started. And an impossibly stuffy woman from one of the broadsheet newspapers was asked what she thought. And she said something like, this is after hearing the launch breakfast show, which I did with Peter Allen. She said, um, there was something, something, about, something about football and I, I just, I really, I don't know who's going to listen. And I just thought, ooh, love, you sound, in re- 25 years History on, she, has not been kind. she didn't sound any better. And I am absolutely convinced there are millions of people like me with a really, with a broad range of interests that include sport, live sport, politics, international news. I want it all. And to be fair, I get it all on Five Live. Is she wrong for us? Shouldn't they just put the football no, on sport extra? I, no, I think I, I absolutely agree. I, I think I, the thing about Five Live is it feels like a proper, without kind of saying, sounding really sycophantic, but it feels like a proper public service. And in, in an era where you know news is breaking all the time and things are happening all the time, it's, it's actually quite comforting to be able to know that there's a place that's not shouty 24-hour news on the TV that you can, you can flick on and you know that you'll be getting... The story that's breaking right now. What what is interesting is that sometimes I find that you turn on Radio Five Live, and you're not sure if you're going to get the football or if you're going to get what's going on in in the Houses of Parliament right now. And that kind of whole understanding about and and it's interesting what Talk is doing with Talk Sport and Talk Radio. Is that right? You know, kind of almost splitting it out. And and so those two things kind of bouncing against each other is is kind of part of the charm of it. But but I do think it's interesting about how. It is a real useful, wherever you are, doesn't matter if you're in front of a TV or not in front of a TV, you're closer to live news that can be authored and properly um, edited in a way that Twitter or, you know, all of those things that we have been jumping to in the last few decades. Actually, Five Live provides something that you can cut through all of that noise and, and get what's going on live and in the moment, which I think is a great thing. And I think, Jane, you were kind of plucked from local radio, weren't you, for Five Live? Yeah, well, this is before. Uh, you couldn't hear me anywhere other than by coming to... Worcester, where in fact I was broadcasting at the time. So, although I suppose they must have been able to get hold of cassettes of my seminal work. I'm sure there was a black market. Uh, Yeah, I bet there was. BBC Hereford and Worcester. Um, Yeah, so, but I wasn't plucked, I applied. Okay. I think the BBC gets away with this all the time. No, to be fair, it was Rod Sharp's version of it was that you were okay, plucked. That's um, what I heard. Yeah, but it no, wasn't the an BBC official. Says this, and, and people at um, and not just about obviously not about me because who gives a toss about me, but plenty of other people. They sort of like to take credit for plucking them. That, <laughs> you hear that a lot. Rubbish. I applied and got through and was selected. And then they also spin this idea that Peter Allen and I were some kind of dream team that were put together. They just couldn't find anybody else uh, in the end. And, and Peter was, uh, I don't think, but he, he knows this, he wasn't the first choice to do the breakfast show. I certainly wasn't. Um, and they were just kind of, I thought, oh, God, well, I think, honestly, a lot of people thought, stick him on at the beginning, it'll be a terrible failure, and then we can get some good people in um, once we've established the network in a couple of months' time. But that career progression is kind of unprecedented now, isn't it? If you're listening to this and you work in BBC Local Radio and you'd like to think one day... I could be on yeah. air for a national. That just, it I just think, won't happen. I do think you're right there, and I think that's a real shame. And I, I think Radio 4 also has to look at, its, look at itself a bit here. I, I, I did uh, some programmes with BBC Radio Sheffield uh, and Women's Hour, um, some sort of simulcasts and, and working together. And the brilliant mid-morning presenter they've got there is called Paulette Edwards. I, I'm sorry, she is at least as good as almost any other presenter on Radio 4 and 5 Live. And, and I think you're right. I'm not sure how the Paulettes of this world are going to get onto national radio because once you're on national radio, you, I mean, people don't, they don't move. They don't. 
they just don't move and there's a it's it's wrong and i think at radio 4 uh we are at the moment trembling uh, in anticipation of our the announcement of our new controller and i think the new controller of radio 4 you know whittled it down to to four people i think they are going to have to make some big bold and some might say difficult decisions about the network with, with whatever money they have left after it's gone to BBC Sounds. <laughs> with the £7.50 that's knocking about in the coffers. I have to say that the, the, the thing is, though, is that two things. I think local radio does need more love. And, and if, if it's being used as a career path, that not, that's not necessarily a good thing. I think having local voices that become really familiar in those places, and it's not always seen as a job application for a national radio show, is, you know, I would argue that there's a lot of credit to that. And there is some really interesting things happening in in radio with you know tiffany who's who's now doing the radio one rap show and i think it's daisy who's doing the um uh, the kiss breakfast show now after there been there's been like a bit of a round robin going on with lots of people moving to radio one and moving to beats one radio and um and that's kind of allowed uh, an opportunity for new talent to come through and those guys have been doing stuff online a lot of them are doing their own radio stations in their own bedrooms and then being heard via via podcasting apps and, and via social and then that's really kind of led them to jump onto the national stage which I think is a different path through and I think it's quite exciting um, but I don't think we should I, I really don't think we should dismiss local radio as being a an opportunity to just kind mm. of promote think, yourself to national what I would say about local radios is it's it's the place I've worked the hardest at because ra- local radio presenters work hard and and they don't earn a lot of money I mean we're talking about People who might well do a three-hour breakfast show in the morning, possibly now double-headed. They'll probably be driving. They will be driving the desk. Uh, they might well. I, mean, I remember I used to work sixteen-hour days. I'd be out in Herefordshire chatting to a WI in the middle of nowhere. Did at you Hop- ever open a supermarket? Uh, I have never opened a supermarket. I have turned on the Christmas lights in Hereford. Yes. Yeah. Were you a consumer Why champion? Consumer champion. Yeah, I'd like you on my side if someone had installed the wrong kitchen, wouldn't you? I I once managed to get Hereford and Worcester County Council to reinstate the village of Hollybush's Hollybush sign, which had been stolen. There you are. We're all about the exclusives. Yeah, Um, absolutely. I I, I thought Farias might be having a go at me there. Was he? No. I don't know well enough. Not at all. Well, because he's belittling local radio. Well, I felt he might be slightly. Yeah. I think think local radio, long live local radio is what I say. It's just hard work. It is hard work. Let's move to uh, the world of kids TV, uh, where the British Film Institute hopes to bring back homegrown children's television to the main channels, as they're still calling them, uh, with an injection of cash. Farias, what's the deal? Oh, this is nothing but good news. I think that what's what's happened in kids TV for a long time is what, more recently what's happened is the junk food advertising has that that law has meant that there's been a retraction of kids content on uh, on the commercial channels uh, because they can't find advertisers to effectively fund it. So the government, I think, is, which is probably the right word, or the state have stepped in and said, right, we need to do more beyond just a license fee to to help British kids content cut through, uh, which is a very good thing in in principle and hopefully it will allow um, particularly the non-public service broadcasters to be more tempted into putting kids content back onto uh, the main channels and uh, and allow a bit more particularly of a British tone of voice rather than just doing American imports which is all a good thing however I would say that there is a bit of a concern that this puts in another layer of bureaucracy and I've got a little bit of a concern about Ideas are no longer commissioned just on the basis of how good those ideas are. They're also being commissioned on how many hurdles and and hoops you have to jump through to get funding from lots of different places. And it's kind of almost aping that indie film um, uh, producer 
arm where you're always kind of trying to find money here and everywhere to get something made rather than the idea itself cutting through. So this is the BFI launching the Young Audiences Content Fund. It's worth £57 million. It's coming from the UK government's contestable fund. Uh, there's a bit of space for public service audio for children as well of £3 million. Which Sam Bailey, I think, is looking after from Radio 1. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? Well, it effectively means the same. It's, it's not just the BBC that are having uh, that, that hold the public service fund, as it were, and, and you can go and uh, apply for money, or is that the right word, or get grants for money? I'm not sure exactly the right terminology about how, how it fits in. But well, you need to demonstrate, don't you, I think that it's 50% funded by a channel, yes. and then you apply okay. for the other 50%. But not the BBC. Well, I think it, it can could, include it the BBC. It could end up going on the BBC, but the idea is that there's there's another route to to production, as uh, it were. I mean, the obvious question, Jane, is isn't this what the BBC is for? Well, I thought it was, um, but and I thought as well that the BBC, CBBC, and CBBC do a good, do, job, do, do a good job and do well. Um, I remember I've got lots of media memories, and I'll never forget the morning the CBBC started, um, because I um, my kids are so old that they well, well the older one was born before CBBS, but we were there on the morning it launched at 6am and I just remember thinking my life has just got easier it was bliss mm. I was, it wasn't actually bliss from then on but it was substantially easier um, How many hours a day of childcare did you delegate to, uh, <laughs> well, to auntie? The nation's favourite babysitter uh, Yeah I suspect like many others I would. I, I, it, it was I, I almost, looking for a figure here no, I'm, It was a sanity <laughs> saver um, it, it really was, and there was um, there are uh, there was one particular program which I remember talking to the. Do you remember Come Outside? Have you ever seen that program? No, okay, Linda Barron, the actress who was in Open All Hours original version with Ronnie Barker. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody's looking blank. Okay, Linda. No, Barron. no, I remember Open All Hours. Yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, Linda Barron was the sort of sex pot that was uh, that he was in love with, and anyway, whatever. Uh, she played um, a sort of figure. She was a dog owner's. Mum? No, she was a dog owner. The dog was called Pippin, and they used to fly around in a plane, exploring things. It was called Come Outside, and the BBC only made 12 editions of it, but they did some fabulous things together, including one of the best programmes I've ever seen about Britain's sewage system. I wasn't expecting to say that. No, which my youngest daughter liked to watch on a loop. <laughs> Not on a U-band. <laughs> I left that one open for you. Um, That's just my memory of come outside, bring it back. But actually, you made a good point. Twelve episodes, you still remember it. That's the thing with kids' telly, isn't it? I, I mean, absolutely. It's, you uh, can repeat this. I mean, Teletubbies, there's only 50 of them or whatever, but that's kind of fine because the kids only watch it for six months. Yeah, and it's. Uh, I think it's incredibly valuable as well because the nostalgia it brings and uh, I really think that the, and the inherent value, you know, I'm a new dad, you're a new dad. It's like, you know, the value of CBeebies and CBBC is, is but what's wrong with repeats is my point. So there, so there is there is the kind, there's nothing wrong with repeats. There's no there's, I have no issue with that. There are a few there are a few things about only having the BBC and CBBS being the only place for kids content. We need to make sure that there's a, a more of a diversity. And, and what we're seeing is as a lot of kids are going towards YouTube and Netflix and Amazon, mm. which is a very Americanized content in the main, or, or certainly not as British as some of the things that we hold very beloved. And and the second thing, and what I would argue is the most important thing, and I'm I'm on the, the BAFTA Kids Committee and we you know this is this this is the kind of stool that I sit on and I'm I'm very passionate about this, is content for teenagers. Um, and so this this con- contestable fund goes up to eighteen year olds. And I've I've been saying for quite a while that 
audiences that are 15, 16, 17, 18, that are older than the CBBC audience, are widely ignored by most broadcasters. You don't have any content for those guys. You get the impression they just give up, don't they? But isn't that because uh, my kids are now teenagers, they they find their own content. So the only time you've got to influence them is before they are able to seek out their own content. And that's why it really does matter that I think in particular the BBC does continue to produce high quality and British, you're really right to, to emphasise that, British shows with British values that we all agree with and we all we can celebrate. But I, I would like to see that across all of the broadcasters, which right. includes Channel 5 and, and Channel 4. And, and this is c- commercially... Well, Channel 5 shows, this yeah, isn't for teenagers. Milkshake and stuff no, like but that. No, it's not because yeah. it's not commercial, because it's not commercially viable. And that's why this... But what I was going to say is Channel 5 shows Thomas... I mean, that is basically British values on an international stage, isn't it? I mean, that's clearly set in England, isn't it? Yes, but there are, there are, there are clearly gaps. You know, there, there, there are issues around kids' television in the UK. It's, it's, it's shrunk and shrunk um, significantly. There, there is a repeats argument, which is a, I think is a valid argument. You can repeat a lot of stuff for kids, but there is a time when it becomes tired and old and you need to make sure you continually refresh it. There are a lot of challenges around kids' TV and, and around the commercial viability of it, particularly when there has been laws that have come through around junk food advertising, which is, on the whole, a good thing. We need to do what we can to, um, to look at childhood obesity, which is a massive issue, but we need to find ways of balancing that. And I think that that's what this fund is going to do. The, the trick is, is how are you going to navigate it all in a world where used to be, where usually you could just go up to commissioner, get an idea commissioned, and not have to worry about speaking to fifteen different commissioners, which which this could end up creating. But wasn't kids TV always a really complex thing to commission? Because I'm talking here not at the teenage end of things, but at the school end of things. Actually, always needed in place a kind of merchandise deal. You needed to know that there was not, international not distribution. No, I don't know if I agree with that. Not not in the UK. We in when when we when we were growing up, you know, Channel Four were doing stuff around education, which was an afternoon, which was a block in the afternoon, which was remitted by Ofcom, and so there was there was programming that was made at that time. Um, CBBC was on BBC Two and had lots of attention, which is why you had the whole playground gathering around to watch one particular program, which is why that nostalgia exists, and um, which is now gone. CBBC is now a digital channel which again is probably a good thing but it's created differences within the market and you know we've now and ITV used to have CITV again as a block on the main channel which now doesn't exist you know the, the landscape has changed significantly from when we were growing up and I think that we are always nostalgic about kids TV but if you went back and looked at it now it is very different to what, to what we had when we were growing up and it's important to reflect that. I'm actually watching on Amazon Prime at the moment with my three-year-old reruns of Fireman Sam which actually came on air just a few years after Fire I was of the right age. Yeah, I think you'll find there's something controversy over that. Yeah, indeed, yeah. Just say that so um, it doesn't matter. Um, but the charm of it, the slow pace of it, is what's amazing watching it now. I mean, you there's compare a lot of it to something. In Tony Pandy, wasn't there? From oh, my memory. Yeah. I, I mean. They needed a bigger department, that's mm, for sure. Yeah. Um, and Sam... They never find sure. that arsonist. I think it was probably Sam. I think that was the twist. <laughs> <laughs> he was making work for himself. But, but what's noticeable is that the pace, if I'm going to show it to my three-year-old before he goes to bed, it's so much more relaxed and calm than most of the stuff that's being made now, which is like a massive theme park ride. Oh, you need to watch Moon and Me. Have you seen Moon and Me? If you no, want, If you want slow-paced television, okay. that's, that's slow TV for this generation. It's Ooh. incredible. And my, my little daughter's obsessed with it. That's her bed, before-bedtime TV. It's okay. uh, as slow as oh, you can get. Good, good tip. Uh, Right, magazine publishing now, where The Face has relaunched, well, as a website, uh, but from September as a quarterly print publication. 
It was an eclectic mix of politics and pop culture in the 1980s, of course. Uh, legendary covers with Kate Moss, Grace Jones, the Stone Roses. Jane, were you surprised to see that the face is being restarted? Not just as a brand, because we mm. knew that the brand had been bought, but eventually as a print title. They are going to have a print version of the face again. Well, I am actually delighted, and I'm going to go out and get a print copy of it. Um, I, I'm not interested. I will not look at it online. It, that means I'm afraid that means nothing to me. I want to own it. I want to look at it. I want to feel it. I want to cherish it because I have a very special relationship with the face. I mean, by the way, I should point out that I'm probably the the least likely reader of the face when I started buying it as an incredible, an exceptionally nerdy and unfashionable teenager. The face meant an absolutely an extraordinary amount to me. Why? I, I I think because it represented possibility and a life away from the obviously what I chose to see as the desperate tedium of my suburban existence. So subcultures, basically. Yeah, well, it, I, I wasn't daring enough to do or be any of those things I read about or saw in the face, but I loved being able to get a window on that world. And I, I should also say that apart from, obviously, births of children and that kind of thing, um, standing in Smith's in Southport and seeing a copy of the face and finding out that they printed my letter will be one of the best moments of my life. I mean, it's nice to hear that kind of uh, excitement, isn't it, for us? Because for me, it was something that sort of vaguely aroused me in the 90s and then I forgot about it. Um, <laughs> How can you say that? I sort of wonder now whether... Actually, if I was excited about it, like Jane is, that's maybe not good news for a publication that's all about fashion and, and targeting younger people. Yeah, um, for me, I, I would rather it didn't come back because, because of for exactly the reasons that Jane said, that I think that it had a... It was an artefact of the time, um, and it, there's, a, there's a danger that you bring these things back and suddenly you dilute how, how impactful they were. Uh, this is a really crowded market now, um, and uh, there are a lot of magazines that didn't exist back when the face was a big deal. That you know, there's Wonderland, there's Hunger magazine, mm. you know, and these court, these big, thick, quarterly publications that are 75% fashion advertising, uh, fashion advertising, and you know, a couple of articles here and there, um, and it's all about the front cover because that's what you put on your coffee table and that's what it's there for. You know, it has a bit of value, but and the first edition, I'm sure, will do very well because it's welcome back to the face. It'll be interesting to know if it's still around a year later. But actually, if they've got the advertisers on board, that's sort of all that matters, isn't it? If the big fashion houses are excited. Yeah, in fact, I bought a bunch of magazines for some research that I was doing around video games recently, and there were hardly any adverts in it whatsoever. And all of these magazines that existed beforehand were much thicker, but but now they seem to be struggling to get advertisers. And, you know, there were six, seven pounds for a copy of a magazine, which is a a lot of money um, for a monthly publication. And, And so in the fashion world... There, there does seem to be, you know, still a market to to get advertising, but it is very crowded now. You know, days, there's days and confuses out there. Like I said, hunger's out there. Um, uh, Wonderland is out there. There's, there's a lot of these things. There's a lot of choice, and there's a lot of choice for advertisers as well. But do they have that mix of kind of reportage and fashion? Because the face, the edition that my letter was in, was the one with Terry Hall on the what cover. What was your letter about? I'm oh, sorry, it's just I should have asked the obvious. It, yeah, well, question. I was obviously I'm going to go back to it. I just have <laughs> in my subtle radio linking kind of way. Uh, it was, it was some kind of. Theme feeble three sentence thing about REO Speedwagon being shit and aren't the English better than Americans basically it was and I didn't use my name I used some I'd assume it was pathetic but I was 17 and mm. this was this was a very big moment for me but what was interesting about that I, um, that particular edition was that it was mixing um, footage or fo- not footage a report from uh, Bob Marley's funeral 
and then there was fashion and the, on the cover art it, it was Terry Hall from the specials was mm. on the cover I, I remember this because I looked did look last night and it brought, still it, got brought it. it all back to me I, I may have just the one issue or you've got a collection no. uh, so, so do those do, do those <laughs> I'm not even answering that do those other magazines have all that stuff well I'm, uh, there, there is a lot of space for it there's certainly a lot of space for it online and, and mm. I think that what um, uh, you know there are there are smaller inverted commas magazines yeah, um, like Gaudem magazine and you know Burnt Roti, which which looks at South Asian representation, um, that are much more highly focused on a particular demographic, and and they've done as brands become very successful. My, my feeling is is that the the business plan around this isn't actually the magazine. The business plan around it is 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 to create a brand that you can then sell T-shirts around, that you can then hopefully get a Netflix show of like you know Netflix and the Face presents whatever that reportage piece is, which is. Interesting, you know, BuzzFeed have had mixed success with that sort of thing. Vox Media have had mixed success with that sort of thing. Um, but but I'm and and I think that there is a valuable brand that exists there. But it doesn't. I don't. I'll be interested to see if it really connects with the same under twenty five demographic that the original face did because I don't think they even know what it is or that it exists. Mm. Um, and and beyond that, you know, Nowness has have 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 existed online for a while. They do really well. You know, I'm, I'm doing some teaching, and whenever I speak to students, they're talking about Nowness. It's nice that. Um, Gaudem and they're not really understanding what the face is it feels like an old piece of nostalgia which I think it should stay as Gaudem um, I really am interested in that we've had a number of contributors on Women's Hour on Radio 4 who've written articles and other stuff done other stuff for Gaudem and they are always really interesting contributors they, they, they do get some good stuff and it's stuff that, I must be honest, that programmes like mainstream programmes like, like ours would have struggled to get those voices, actually. And, and I suppose for- the advantage of the face as a brand, even if you never heard of it, if you're 25 or whatever, is that the values that it stands for are quite zeitgeisty still, aren't they? Kind of sexually androgynous and a lot of DIY fashion and I mean, basically the kind of thing you see all over Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, and I th- like I said, I think that it has a very powerful brand for people that remember the magazine back when it was being published. It's been on a hiatus for, what, 15 years or something like mm-hmm. that, which is, a, which is a whole generational shift. And um, if they want to kind of attract that audience back to them again, I think they're going to struggle. If they want to attract the nostalgia audience, the people that listened, that re- read it 15 years ago, then, then they may have a limited amount of success there. Well, but Jane's already in the queue. Yeah, so I'm there. <laughs> there's, there's plenty others, I'm sure. Uh, let's talk about streaming now. You mentioned Netflix. They have impressed investors this week by increasing their subscriber numbers by 9.6 million in the last three months, uh, despite mounting competition from Disney and Apple, as we've talked about on this show a lot. Do you think, Jane, Netflix's strategy will continue to work in the face of that competition? It is a, it's a mystery, isn't it, Netflix? I mean, I, everyone's got it. And I, because I knew I was coming here, I looked, I haven't actually watched anything on Netflix for as long as I can remember. So I looked at what was on offer for me this morning. And apart from the Beyonce documentary, which I think I will watch, I, I've, sorry, there wasn't, but I'm talking about me personally, there was, there was nothing that grabbed me but then I don't have a lot more time in my life for more binge watching. Where do you do your binge watching? I don't really binge watch very much and I don't have a lot of time to watch telly and it would never be my priority. So I do watch stuff, but I often watch linear television, watch one episode, forget to watch any more. So shows like Victim and The Widow, and the, I, mean, I think I saw... The first episode of The Victim, never watched anymore. It was the guy you thought it was going to be, by the was way. Was it him, by the way? It was <laughs> I'm not going to say, I'm no, not going to say. Was it, wasn't it? Okay. There's still people catching so, up. I, and then The Crown will comes out in the autumn, Christmas time. I probably will watch that. 
The point is, though, that's well, a success. What was the question? Well, it's a success for Netflix. That I was yeah, asking I've about. Got it. They're getting my money. Exactly. I was asking whether their business model is successful. And yeah, you're essentially saying is. yes because you, Damn, it you is. keep renewing it and occasionally yeah. watch it. Yeah, you've got me there. I mean, for us, they're spending a lot on original content, aren't they? $12 billion last year. Can that continue? Well, and my understanding is that the reason that the subscriber numbers have increased is because they've been making progress in countries that didn't have Netflix before. So it's true to say that they've hit saturation points in in the UK and, and the US. I'm sure there's still a little bit of room for growth, but generally, if you want Netflix, you're going to have had it by now. Um, there, there are, But when it comes to places like this, there's an interesting thing about launching in India, and that's a kind of growth area for a lot of these streamers, whether it's Spotify or it's... Uh, or it's Netflix, and uh, and there's a whole different tactic about you know a mobile first strategy and making things for smaller screens and making things that are available um, across 3G and 4G networks that that they've always been the first at, and that's really really compelling. Um, and I've forgotten what your question was. What your question? Loads of money, loads of money on content. Business, I've only asked one question to both of you. <laughs> is, the business, <laughs> is their business strategy but successful? But there's still a lot of mystery surrounding how many viewers they've got, yeah. isn't it? Well, less so now. So they, they started to release figures um, around uh, certain shows. Um, and have also said they've cancelled certain shows because they're not getting enough figures. Okay. So there is there is movement there. There's, there's rumours that they're, gonna, they're trialling a, uh, a top 10 feature of the top 10 most watched shows on Netflix to kind of promote in that space. But my favourite game is still looking at other people's Netflix. It's a little bit like when you used to go in people's houses and look at their CD collection. If you log into people's Netflix, it's a different, completely different set of shows from what you get um, based on on their viewing habits and I always think that that's really compelling my mum and dad's Netflix um, um, uh, suggested program is, is very very different to mine and, and that's always a lot of fun because yeah, they have so much my watches a lot of Mexican soap operas which I didn't even know you could get on Netflix wow. yeah, there's so much stuff that you don't know because it's not targeted at you yeah. and it's you know it's, and they are very good at kind of making sure that that programmatic advertising except Jane is, says they're not so maybe you haven't been using it enough for it to I be learned. I, have, I clearly reason. haven't been yeah. using it enough. Honestly, and I've got Amazon Prime as well. So actually, I, you have really got, or they have got me, absolutely hung out to dry over a barrel. Uh, and they've got my money. So they can do what the hell they like with it. And they are doing, clearly, making loads of content for other people to consume. You were one of the people that came on this show regularly for us and sort of teased ahead to the launch of Apple and Disney entering the streaming service world as something that could be a game changer. And I haven't had you on the show since we know what they're doing. Now we know what they're doing. It's not <laughs> that exciting, is it? Being taken around the back by Disney and Apple and being, told to sh- being gagged and told to <laughs> shut up. No, that's not, that's not what's happened at all. So two things. I, I think that the strategy that both Disney and Apple have uh, no one really knows what the strategy is for Apple is. I've got some thoughts about it, but certainly for Disney, it's, it feels fairly obvious. If you've got children, you are going to subscribe to Disney+. Plus. It doesn't matter if you've got Netflix or you've got Amazon already. Um, it is, looks like an incredible service, and I think that they're doing an incredible job. Which is purely because um, of that back catalogue. Yeah, I mean, it, you, it's every Disney movie ever released, which, which it's And they've taken them off other platforms. They've taken them off other platforms. And also, yeah. they've also unlocked them. So they had this thing called a Disney Vault where you could never buy all of the Disney DVDs at the same time because they, they created built-in scarcity, which was part of the whole original DVD and VHS strategy that Disney had. That's gone. If you want to watch every Disney movie, you can now do that. If you want to watch every Marvel movie, you can now do that. They own, you know, Star Wars. They've got content coming out with, one of the, with the world's biggest franchises. And they, they are, you know, going to be able to connect with all of those audiences. And alongside that, they've obviously done this massive deal with Sky as well. Um, and, you know, Nat Geo is going to be on that platform. And they're going to be doing this stuff with Hulu. It's, okay, you know, okay, so, so excited about that, fine. Great. But Apple isn't very exciting, so is it? Apple, no, no, no. I, think, I was I think, underwhelmed. So, well, I think that Apple's strategy is still unclear, purposely unclear, um, and I think lots of people are speculating. If you want my two pence or yes, two please. cents, whatever, or 79p, whatever you want to look at it, I, I think that what Apple's strategy is, is um, you need, to, and particularly in the UK, 
it's worth looking at what ITV and Channel 4 are doing. So ITV and Channel 4 are both launching subscription arms to their on-demand players. BritBox is obviously coming, which is a subscription service as well. And what it seems to be happening is, is that Apple are going to be launching all of these programs to move people into their TV app and therefore allow you to subscribe to all four and ITV, and it becomes effectively a shop front. So I think that the strategy isn't the same as Netflix or even indeed the same as Disney's. I think what Apple's strategy seems to be is come and open our TV app, which exists on all the devices that you have, including Samsung TVs and LG TVs. You will see Jennifer Aniston and Steven Spielberg and all of these great things, which will draw you into that app. And then when you come to make a decision about whether or not you want to subscribe to BritBox or Hulu or even maybe Disney+, Plus, you will do that via the Apple TV app and then they will get a 30% cut of, of that subscription, which is what their very, very, very successful App Store model has been. Um, and I think that that's where we're going to see their strategy move towards. So I think you need to look at, at Apple TV as more as a distribution and shopfront strategy. So they'll be, they'll be the internet strategy. for online telly, basically. Exactly. They'll be Chrome exactly. but for TV. But they don't have Netflix, which is number one. And, and Netflix has pushed back very hard on subscribing via, to Netflix via the App Store. You cannot do that via the iPhone app or the iPad app. They've made it very difficult to do that because they don't want to share the revenue with there. Spotify have done the same thing. But if, if Apple can, can entice partners like Disney um, and, and like Channel 4 and ITV and BritBox and all of those guys, you know, that's a very lucrative amount of money that they will be able to turn over month by month. And it's a very different strategy to what Netflix is doing. But if they don't have Fireman Sam, Jane... Well, so, so I've, I've, are they going to do their own original content? They are doing yeah. their own original right, content. Okay. But I think the way to look at it is that when you buy your phone from Apple, there are original apps on your phone, which are free. I should um, say for the benefit of the listener, Faraz literally held up his phone then. Here it like is. Like he's I doing a demo in the Apple is this store. this microphone, yeah. not a camera? Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah. there are... This Jane is a phone. <laughs> <laughs> but when you buy your Apple product, there are Apple apps on that product, which are regarded as the best for those utilities, but they then push you towards purchasing other apps via their app store. And I think a similar strategy will probably be followed, but they need to make sure that they have the best possible content so that you do press that Apple TV button and get into that universe. Okay, we'll be back with more media news after this. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Now, MediaPodders, you may have noticed we are putting out a few more episodes this year, and that 
is all thanks to you and your very generous donations to this show. Every time you pledge a piece of money to this show, we plough it back into the podcast, whether that's recording bonus episodes or finding new guests. So help us make great new episodes all year round by taking out a voluntary subscription. If you would be so kind, just head to themediapodcast.com slash donate. Time for some media news in brief now. Jane and Faraz are still with me, and let's talk pay gap. Glad you're here, Jane. Of all the guests. (laughs) Analysis by the Press Gazette has found that nearly a third of UK media firms have seen their gender pay gap actually increase over the last 12 months, and sadly, needless to say, uh, not in favour of the ladies. Jane, what's going on here? Well, we know what's going on. Uh, It's been going on since time itself began. Actually, I I, I could wang on and bore on about this for ages, Um, and I don't want to do that, but I think it's worth repeating a few sort of obvious core facts. The the gender pay gap isn't the same as equal pay for a start. Um, Women's lives and men's lives are not quite the same. So, yeah, so there are companies that have apparently very bad gender pay gap that might be paying men and women the same. Well, they've got to pay men and women the same yeah. for doing the same work. Because but they'll if have they more senior men. That's that is actually illegal, of yeah. course. Um, yeah, but this is, of course, where we get into very complicated territory and people um, lose their minds trying to work all this out. Uh, yes, so why are there more men in senior roles getting more money? Um, that's because women's lives and men's lives, working lives, tend to differ slightly when it gets to the stage of families starting to have kids, couples starting to have kids. We know that. Um, I suppose, what do we do to change the mindset that it's usually the woman who spends the time at home? And I also, you've got to bear in mind, some women want to be at home. I actually was at home myself and I worked part-time so that I could do bits of that and bits of what I wanted to do in the workplace. So women make these decisions and sometimes they make them for very, very good reasons and I would absolutely back them up. What we need to do obviously is change, uh, change, just quite simply change the working culture and make it easier for men to feel free to make the same decisions. Some men won't want to make those decisions at all, of course, but there will be some who are actually really desperate to be at home for longer. Uh, to be around more for their kids when they are young. And also easier, I presume, to allow those women who have taken the time whilst their children are growing up out of work to come back at an equivalent or more senior level. It would be. And, uh, yeah, the women I know, because I'm actually doing uh, something at an event for women returners in a couple of weeks. This is the, the idea of returnships, getting women back into senior managerial roles after they've been at home for a couple of years. And some of those women are, inc- they are you know, they've got MBAs, but they've been at home for a couple of years and they lose confidence in their own ability. They feel they've fallen behind. They won't be taken seriously. And too often the emphasis in those situations is not on what a woman can offer, but she, uh, but she's thinking, what is it I won't be able to do? Uh, what is it I won't be able to understand? And they, women are very reluctant to embrace what they have achieved in that time at home, which is not a walk, literally not a walk in the park, although you will spend quite a bit of time <laughs> in parks based on my own experience. And the other thing I think is really important, there are lots of things that are important here, um, I've always been told, well, women don't ask for a pay rise. That's utter rubbish. Women do ask for a pay rise, and all too often they don't get one. There's also the fact that women are not innocent here. Um, so there have been some very senior women at the BBC throughout my time there. And it's it's all part of... It's in our psyche, women as well as men, to be more likely to rate men 
than women. So it isn't just men who rate men, women rate men as well. Is there a complication as well in media terms that a lot of the story's been focused on on-air talent? No, that, I'm, Whereas, really, I, I'm really glad you mentioned that. It's actually it's a, about behind the scenes, it's really. Complete, I mean, the presenter thing, we used it at BBC and with BBC Women. We used the, the presenters as a way of getting attention. Yeah. But we're a tiny, we're not even a pinprick when it comes to actual representation at the BBC. And the ongoing problems we have, the situation we have at the BBC, is, as you rightly say, is with producers across the entire organisation who are have found that they are mysteriously paid unglamorous sums, like two or three grand a year, less than the bloke sitting diagonally opposite them doing the same job. And... You think, well, what does that matter? Well, over the course of a career, pensions, everything else, it really does matter. Okay, so, I mean, you've been very vocal about the BBC, obviously, but what about this list now? That oh, no, it's terrible. The BBC, of course, is one of the least worst. Exactly. Yeah, so, so we well, have, we've always known that. So we have this. The Economist has the highest pay gap. <laughs> so, yeah. um, although their chief exec, Chris Stibbs, says there is, quote, a healthy gender balance in recruitment and career progression. Let's what, hope so. What does success look like? Like, if you're looking at that list of media companies, is it about, because you mentioned all the different factors involved. Yeah. Is it about just narrowing the gap more or is it looking for parity? Is parity actually not really achievable? I mean, it probably isn't really achievable. But certainly not in my my lifetime, I wouldn't think. I think it's it's it's, involved, it's already involved. We've had, a God knows, a string of uncomfortable conversations at the BBC about this. And I, I think it's caused a certain amount of embarrassment that the BBC has been made to look quite old-fashioned. I, you know, I've got two teenage girls. They uh, They look at the BBC... And they think, what would this organisation offer me? A place where we've had to listen. We, our mother has enjoyed her, her working life, and I have, I should say. But at the same time, she also bangs on about how she's been underpaid. And uh, women of colour at the BBC are still getting a, a substantially more challenging time, I would say, than their white counterparts. I think there are some issues at the BBC World Service about the way female producers have been treated. And um, it's an endless, ongoing string of, of issues and conversations that we are at least now acknowledging. And uh, we've also formed a, I don't think it's any secret that we've formed a group who are continuing to talk to each other, to cooperate, to share stories and experiences. And I think possibly people thought we might go away. Well, it, 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 it has never gone away. That group is getting bigger and more and more women are joining and, uh, and getting involved. So so nicely deflected back to the BBC, but looking at that list <laughs> yeah, of commercial no, companies, I, no, are any of them worthy of mention? Of, of yes, they've done a good job. Well, I mean, I, I mean, Dennis Publishing has women paid more than men. Yeah, well, good, but how? Uh, that's great. News Quest as well. Yeah, okay, that's also brilliant. Um, obviously, it's very unfortunate. It's a bit for harsh the men. on the men. Uh, yeah, no, but I've just acknowledged that. <laughs> I've just acknowledged their suffering. It's these things are obviously not going to be sorted out overnight, except to say that. I do think it's important that across all media, women get the same chances as their male counterparts. And because we know that men have dominated in senior positions, I don't think there is any doubt at all across all forms of media, certainly not just the BBC, people have appointed in their own image. They have given opportunities to people with whom they might have gone for a drink played golf with back in the day, chatted to about West Ham. All of these things do matter. I remember when I joined BBC Local Radio, there would be a cluster of male producers and editors who would stand around the cricket, jangling the change in their trouser pockets and talking to me and my female colleagues incomprehensible gibberish about what was going on on the screen. And I would have been completely out of my depth as well. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. But we did feel that we were 
slightly outside mm. that. And actually, we were right to feel it because we were. I mean, the problem is, Baraz, even if everyone, even which I'm not saying is happening, I'm not saying there isn't a problem, but even if everyone in the industry agreed with everything Jane just said and says, yes, there's a huge problem here and we must work towards it, the solution might mean moving on very successful male bosses to equalise pay. And the problem is, if you're doing a good job, that's its own form of discrimination at this point, isn't it? It's more I, of a long-term I, thing than that's, that. That's not what I heard from what Jane was saying. I, no, I, I, said, what do you do I also it? said female bosses were a part of this too. Yeah, so, and, and, and the I, only way to address the pay inequality would be to have more female bosses, which means some of those male bosses moving on, doesn't it? Well, I, look, there's, there's a whole bigger issue about how long people stay in the top jobs and, and, you know, how quickly that rotation happens. And is that a good thing or a bad thing for a creative industry? I would argue that, you know, more rotation is a good thing to keep, you know, creative renewal alive. There's also this problem also exists with, with people of colour. You know, this is and I, I think that there's also an issue around there because I, I agree with Jane that just had a, a, a new child and she doesn't want to work full time. And we're a small company that has very limited funds and we can't afford to have a head of development that works full time. So that's that's a situation that works for both of us. Now, if you, were, if you were to inspect our company, you could argue that there's a massive gender pay gap because, because me as a male is working full-time and Jess and Dee, who don't want to work full-time, uh, are therefore earning less and therefore there's a massive disparity there. But we've actually actively hired people that want to be more flexible because they don't want to work full-time. And, and so sometimes these figures can, can be slightly misleading. But we do need to make sure that we interrogate them properly and make sure there aren't problems. Um, and, and if this is what if the, these, these surveys spark conversations, then that's inherently a good thing. But I don't think it's as simple as there is discrimination going on or there's, a, there's an issue going on. I think that there are lots of, lots of reasons and causes about why we have these imbalances and we need to kind of interrogate all of them and find out if there are some advantages along the way. It will be interesting when the BBC puts out its figures again in the summer. Uh, I think there'll be more women because actually the problem at looking at that league table last summer, it was actually worse last year than it had been the year before when everything kicked off. Um, surely this summer is going to show a few more high-earning women on that list. But also, there are some subtler points about this. The highest-earning woman, who's, who was Claudia Winkleman, what, what is interesting is that she, is, she has a degree from Cambridge. She is a highly intelligent woman, but that isn't the reason she's paid such an enormous sum of money by the BBC. So she isn't Andrew Marr or a big-brained man, although there are plenty of highly intelligent women who work for the BBC. She's doing light entertainment brilliantly, but the blokes who are earning loads of money tend to be valued for their mega brains. And I think that's another thing that is probably going to have to change. Well, the good news for me at the media podcast is uh, the producers here would struggle to find anyone of any gender who'd do this job for my salary. Uh, let's move on to talk about the uh, nominations for the British Podcast Awards released this week uh, for the third year running. They're actually called the British Podcast Awards Powered by Dax, I've been told by the producer to say. What's Dax? It's like, it's, Dax it's like the Chris Evans show with Sky. That's just how you say it. Uh, the nominations were announced in a live stream by the cast of No Such Thing as a Fish, uh, who admitted they'd been too slow to submit their entry before the deadline, so they weren't nominated. But uh, but Jane, you are with Fee Glover, fortunately. Yeah, oh, so are you. Congratulations. So am I, yes, yes for the modern man. Very I'm kind not. of you to mention. You're not mentioned. Oh, I've not made a podcast. Yet. We are making a podcast this year, but we've not right. made a podcast. I'm sure it'll yet. be nominated next year. Minimum entry criteria is you must make, make a podcast. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, any highlights from the nominees, apart from what we've already discussed? Um, well, obviously, fortunately, yes. Although uh, Fee and I are nominated in a category, I simply have no idea what it means. But we'll, we'll, we don't give. Uh, we'll what, happily what is the take spotlight. Spotlight. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. I think that might mean 
diverse. Okay. But, it's but, open to interpretation. Yeah, I, I, suppose, I really had yeah. I, or couldn't find a nomination for them in any other category, so I've shoved them in this one. <laughs> this podcast has been recorded um, one light bulb ahead of you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, I really don't know what it means. Anyway, we're highly delighted. It's a good fun event, may I Is say. It? Well, we're going. Yeah, and we're I, going well, I'm going too, and good. I'm not presenting it this year, so I get to get drunk, so I look forward to seeing you there. Okay, well, um, I'll definitely be there. And I, I well, there are, I've got, I do love podcasts. In fact, it's probably because I love podcasts that I don't listen or I don't watch much Netflix. Mm. Or Amazon Prime, and I certainly won't be watching Apple TV or indeed Disney Plus. Um, but I do, I did listen to Dear Joan and Jerrica. Yes, and uh, they have rightly been nominated. And I, this is the Julia Davis, Julia thing. Davis and Vicky Pepperdine, and it's absolute unadul- unadulterated, challenging, quite upsetting filth. Mm. Which I liked. Yeah, it's not, it's not your easygoing driving soundtrack, but I suppose that's the point of podcasting, isn't it? Faraz, do you have any highlights? The big, from looking at the list, the big story seems to be George the Poet. It seems that he's nominated in lots of different categories, and he's he's uh, I think he's most nominated. I'm, mm. I'm looking at, at Matt and, and Ollie. Yeah, he is, he is, that's yeah. So that's, that's really, and it is, put out very an, few episodes actually, and it's an amazing podcast as well. It's, it's beautifully produced, and and um, and I hope that he uh, he picks up some gongs as, as a result. Um, I was quite surprised that Brexit cast. Is surprisingly absent. I think that Brexit Cast is the big breakout podcast of the year. Did they not enter? I don't know the answer to that, but it just it just feels like there's um, that that from where I'm standing, that's the thing that everyone's talking about. That's the kind of the the porno or the serial of of the year. Um, And uh, I was kind of expecting to see Mm. that being being shortlisted in lots of different categories. Maybe they've been too busy trying to figure out what the withdrawal agreement says, or uh, Mm. or they were hoping they could kick the can down the road when they were making their application. (laughs) But whatever for whatever reason that I've. You know, they, I haven't seen them on the list. Um, uh, but but there's, you know, a, as as ever, this award ceremony causes me great anxiety because it shows me that there's lots of stuff that I'm not listening to that's really great and I really don't want to subscribe to because my podcast list is just growing exponentially and I haven't got enough hours in a day. So I liked um, End of Days as well, the Five Live podcast about Waco, which I thought was brilliantly done. And... and what, what's the, the other great thing about podcasts is it tells you stories you, you didn't... you. You hadn't heard. And I didn't know about the British victims at Waco. Mm. I just didn't know. Mm. I don't know why I didn't know, but I didn't know. And I, I, I found myself completely immersed in that. I thought that was really, really good. Yeah, and with a level of detail as well, I guess, that you just wouldn't get in a five-minute news mm. report, you know. Yeah. Um, OK, well, the awards are on the 18th of May. Uh, we will bring you news of them uh, when they happen. And Dax, by the way, for us, is an advertising, dynamic advertising insertion type podcasting company. Isn't it a robot in a sci-fi series? It I'm is sure. also that. Uh, <laughs> and it's owned by Global, who are the centre of our next story, in fact. Uh, Global have been given the go-ahead to take over billboard advertising company Exterion Media. That comes hot on the heels of their purchase last year of two other out-of-home advertising firms, PrimeSight and Outdoor Plus. We talked about it on the show like it was a done deal, but it wasn't actually. It is now. And Global are now... Uh, 35% of the UK outdoor market. Uh, Faraz, why do you think Global are so keen on billboards? They're doing all right, Global, aren't they? They seem to be like <laughs> spending a lot of money and uh, uh, getting the cash cannon out. Um, I, it makes sense that, that they, you know, I think outdoor space is, a, is an interesting um, space. I was reading an article recently about how football advertising can be made dynamic now. So when you see it on a TV programme, you can change it depending on what country you're you're um, uh, watching that football show on, so the hoardings around it may say one brand in one country and a different brand in a different country. Um, and uh, you know, with the advent of more technology, meaning that you can put 15 different adverts on one billboard, uh, it seems like this is becoming a more and more lucrative space. So you know, 
it'll be interesting to see what they do with all of that and if they are now going to be the people that, that effectively brand a country. But um, fair play to them. If they want to spend some money in this space, then there's obviously a business for it. Slightly awkward thing, Jane, is that they own buses, for example, contracts mm-hmm. to plaster radio stations across buses which are much frequented by BBC Sounds, uh, Magic, I've seen ads for at the moment, yeah. Absolute. You know, if you're Bauer or the BBC, does it just stick in the throat that you've got to give a load of money to Global to advertise your own radio station? It is going to be awkward. You do sometimes wonder when Global are going to stop buying things. I mean, are they going to make a bid for the BBC? Well, I, it is probably a fair point. They've run out of radio stations to buy. And so they're now them, looking for more stuff. More yeah. stuff, yeah. OK. Well, I've got a couple of garden chairs they could have if they're interested. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it, it is... Uh, uh, does it mean that you'll be driving along the Hogarth, whatever it is, and you'll there'll be a ginormous Nick Ferrari I coming at you must 20, be 24 hours a day? Mustn't it? Is in the downtime they for the billboard? They could show, they could live stream their shows. Uh, I think onto that is billboards. It. When is they've it? already started doing that, so you can actually drive down the M40 and see a big poster of Ian Dale saying this is on right now. And I, I suppose the idea there's is to, an, surely there's an internal market for it. I mean, if if you know they they if BBC Sounds want to give global a lot of money to advertise on their billboards they're going to take that money um there is a question about the inventory the unused inventory but that's not a good thing for global if people aren't buying the ad space and they're having to put their own stuff on it that suggests that they probably shouldn't have bought that much ad space mm. um uh, so I'm, I'm sure that like you know there's a that there's a kind of a little bit of a hedge between the two businesses and um uh, and we won't necessarily see this being used just because it's not very good use of space. That it's just all going to be used for Ian Dale adverts and Nick Ferrari adverts. Um, and, uh, and and so I, I imagine that this is a different business. Uh, here is something we don't usually do on the programme. Recommend a book. Uh, BBC Newsnight presenter Emily Maitlis is on the press junket trail at the moment talking about Airhead. Good title. The Imperfect Art of Making News. It's a sort of autobiography. Have you heard about it, Jane? Yes, I have. Well, yeah, em- Emily was a very good, she was a very good guest, unfortunately, the uh, award-nominated podcast. I've heard of it. Yeah, um, and she was very funny, actually, uh, and quite quite revealing about her regime of hair, um, hair styling. She has her hair done by a retired Albanian army general who comes around on a motorbike three times a week. It's just something I'll never forget about Emily Maitlis. Um, we I, all would if we could. <laughs> I um, I would like to read the book, actually. I don't think I'd pay for it. It's one of those things I'll wait to grab off the shelf at work, Emily. Or you could just send me a copy at <laughs> Woman's Hour. It's actually interesting, to go back to the pay thing, Emily uh, was involved in sort of kicking off the whole BBC Women thing when she retweeted a tweet that I'd tweeted. And from then on... A, um, what would I, I was going to call it a movement, but that sounds a little grand. But that's sort of where a chain of events. But yeah, because she she was not especially um, her pay was the subject of quite a lot of controversy, and I think that has been changed now. So and we're in a different good. world in terms of her profile too. I mean, uh, she is no, now heading up she Newsnight. She is now the chief in, interlocutor interrogator yes. on Newsnight, and, and very much valued for her brain. I mean, you said that BBC women yeah, not she, necessarily. She, yeah, but she wasn't valued as much as Claudia Winkleman was valued for okay. pretending she didn't have a brain, which is effectively what she does when. She's on Strictly. That's, but, uh, and that's not a criticism of her. It's just an observation. But there actually are, aren't there, for us, it seems to me, especially since Brexit, a sort of tranche of women across current affairs who are being valued in, in ways perhaps they weren't. I'm thinking of people like Laura Koonsberg and Catherine Adler. I think, mm. for the, particularly for the, for the BBC, I, I think their female journalists at the moment are, are firing on all cylinders. They're more interesting. They're giving better insight. They tell stories in a better way. And, and I think that they're the best in the business. I think, as you mentioned, Laura Koonsberg, Kirsty Walk, 
Um, uh, and Emily made a rule doing exceptional work and, and far out, what well, I would argue, if far out, not to pit them against each other, but far out gunning their, their male counterparts at the moment. Oh, you can. Like, um, you can say that. But, but it's, tr- it's true. I mean, you, you will want to. F- and I think it's not just in, in the UK. I, I think what Maggie Haberman is doing with the New York Times in, in the US, you know, she is now pretty much the face of the New York Times right now. And, and it really demonstrates that the, the art of storytelling through journalism is at the moment feels like it's being absolutely nailed by by that that side of the that it's side it, of the gender balance. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, Laura and Katja Adler are both incredibly fluent, articulate speakers who can make really dense, complicated issues seem relevant to people like me who do have an interest, but I'm by no means an expert. And they both really come to life on Brexit Cast as well, which is the format that allows them to be. Mm human and funny and I, I'm it's a generalization but I wonder sometimes whether the great BBC male political editors were I'm glad they're not in charge at the moment because I'm not sure they'd have been quite so light light on their feet in terms of the verbal dexterity required at the moment and, and also I do enjoy the odd cheeky question from Pina. Let's be fair. Oh no, big John. I mean, no one argues with him, and certainly not me. No, you're right. I mean, he's 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 a legend, John. Where he was the big um, politics guy at Five Live for a long time. So I, I mean, I do hugely admire them. And Emily's book, I I, I will read it. Um, I'm sure it is going to be interesting. Um, it's also I've read a review, the one you sent me, that suggested it was in the Guardian. Yes, if you're interested, um, it that there wasn't quite enough about her personal. Mm. They wanted, and actually, I would say she's because various things that have happened. I I, I defend her right why should she bring us her personal story we don't demand that stuff from men usually or not if men in a similar high role high profile intelligent intellectual role they're not usually required to i'm, I'm tell thinking us about, about i, I their think childhood. i disagree with you nick Do robinson you... wrote about his cancer didn't he and i, I would have been weird if he hadn't in his book okay well maybe well, we're not going to argue, because uh, I'm, I'm simply I just think never that's the most wrong. obvious comparison. No, I but. just think sometimes, uh, uh, and she'd had a, an issue with the stalker, and I understand she does write about the she stalker does, in her yeah. book. Um, but I think sometimes women are, you're meant to give more of your personal style. And sometimes you think, well, why the hell should I? Um, and so I quite admire her for not, not going there, actually. Well, so we're, we're nearly done, but there, you'll be pleased to know, Jane, we want a little bit more from you, because there is just time for our media quiz. This week, it's entitled The Things Spokespeople Say. I have three quotes from the past seven days of media news. Uh, You just buzz in with your name when you know who said it and if what they said bears any relation to reality. Uh, Best of three. Uh, I know, Jane, you're new to this, so you buzz in with your name when you know the answer. So, Jane, you will say... Jane. And Faraz, you will say... (laughs) Faraz. Okay, here's quote number one. We regularly review what is on offer. We offer a wide range of titles to give our customers plenty of digital and print options for news, business and leisure reading material. Oh, Faraz, is this, is this uh, the world's favourite airline? <laughs> it is, yes. Uh, a spokesperson for BA. Do you remember the story? It's, it's, it's the FT being pulled oh, yeah. from... Uh, uh, well, I, I say being pulled, but no longer being offered to customers um, mm. as they enter their, their plane cabin. Uh, it was quite a fun spat to follow, wasn't it? The FT published a full page. Well, the FT published a full page saying that the reason was because they'd written unflattering things about British Airways, and BA say, no, we just review our media content periodically, and for some reason, the Financial Times is no longer suitable material. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sort of with the FT on it, but uh, yeah. What do, you reckon, do you reckon they pulled it because of the stories they were writing? I think so, Faraz, yes. I think you Don't might you? be right. Here is press spokesperson number two, buzzing with your name when you know the answer. These panels are triggered algorithmically, and our systems sometimes make the wrong call. Okay. Faraz, is this, is this 
YouTube. It is YouTube. <sighs> were you close, Jane? You were pipped there. Oh, I'm going to say I was close. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> really close indeed, yeah. Uh, do you remember the story? Well, this is about them, like, saying uh, that when, when you search for something that you get given fact-checking information. Specifically? From, it was going to be from Wikipedia, but it's now from... It's like, I, I imagine it's, like... Come on. What caught fire this week? Oh, not to Yeah, from a bonus point. Yeah. Were they blaming it on Muslims? That's probably what they were doing. Essentially. Right, so brilliant. what okay, happened great. is there, there are conspiracy theories online, and YouTube have automated procedures to take that stuff down, fake news, so that if you're Googling it it automatically directs you to a page which basically says, take your medicine, have a look at this, and think about it before you watch it. But they accidentally recommended 9-11 conspiracy theories. Um, because it, <laughs> is, that tr- is that true? Yes, because their algorithm identified a plume of smoke and thought it was 9-11. Here's spokesperson number three, buzzing with your name when you know the answer. I'm sure many of us will have made a mistake at work. Unfortunately okay. for me... Oh, Jane? Jane. Yes, it is. Jane, Jane. Jane who? Secker. Yes. Sky News presenter Jane Secker. Do you remember the context? It was about renting. Yes. And I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I can see both sides here. Go on. I, well, partly it, it struck me as I'm, I often find myself in similar role to Jane Secker, interviewing somebody who could be my child, and they just end up... <laughs> sort of grind you down. There's something about it that makes you think, oh, um, it's, a, it's a generational So the situation irritation. was, Jane Secker, turns out, is a landlord. Yes. And, and she was interviewing a young lady a young woman, who's a yeah, renter yeah, yeah. and a protester against dodgy landlords. Yeah. And, and she was, per- the, but the young woman who was a protester had every right to have her have her say. No, and she, was it right to apologise? It probably was right in this instance. I, I've done it myself. I've, I've just taken the wrong tack, mm. used the wrong tone. I feel for, for, like I say, I genuinely do have sympathy with both sides here. Sometimes when you're live interviewing somebody, you get it wrong. Uh, yeah. Very good work. For us, though, you are the winner. Hooray! Oh, oh. Today's edition. They should let me win because I'm a girl. It's not fair. <laughs> this is always what happens. Um, that is it for our show for today. My thanks to Jane and to Faraz. I'll be back in a couple of weeks, but next week on this feed will be another edition of the Media Business Podcast, in which the team will be talking sales. So stay subscribed for that. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and the Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, bye bye. 